0: Hi, this is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm the editor of the journal Radiology. This is part two of our May 2019 podcast. The goal of these podcasts is to present a brief summary of key research in our field to keep you up to date. Today, we will have five research articles, so let's proceed directly to today's topics. Our first research article is CT Angiography of the Aorta, Contrast timing using a fixed versus patient specific trigger delay. The first author is Dr. Ricardo Hunzpeter. The senior author is Dr. Hadam El Khadi. The study is from University Hospital in Zurich. Background Anyone doing MR or CT angiography of the body has been inundated over the past 20 years, hearing of many different ways to inject the contrast agent in relationship to performing the imaging. Our quest has been to get perfect and consistent visualization of all of the arteries of interest on every patient, no matter the study indication. Most often, the injections work well only perhaps half to three quarters of the time. I am always amazed when the CTA for pulmonary embolism looks more like a CTA aortic study. Why does that happen? Was it the technologist, the patient, or the injection protocol? Or? Chest, abdomen, and pelvic CTA has excellent contrast around the aortic arch, but in the pelvis, arterial enhancement may be very poor. The problem of poor arterial enhancement tends to happen at the worst of times, when the patient is very ill, perhaps septic or in renal failure. Our solutions for better injection protocols have ranged from the trivial to the complex, with neither variation working well. Our protocols are made more complex because each generation of a new CT or MRI scanner is faster, so the protocol needs to be redesigned. If I heard a lecture about your scanner, it typically did not work on mine. As an example, let's go back to the year 1994. In that year, Dr. Martin Prince published his landmark study in radiology on gadolinium-enhanced MRA. In 1994, an MRA of the body with gadolinium took at least five minutes to acquire. Dr. Prince quickly realized that a very special gadolinium injection protocol was needed. How do you obtain high levels of GAD in the arterial system for that long? If you remember back to those days, the solution was double or triple dose of gadolinium, often diluted and injected very slowly over at least three minutes. Instead of five minutes, MRA of the body now takes 10 to 15 seconds. CTA takes 1 to 5 seconds. These very short acquisitions make the relationship between the duration of the contrast bolus and the start of the imaging even more critical. If I image just a few seconds too early, the images will be obtained far ahead of the contrast bolus in certain patients. When in doubt about cardiac output, a solution is simply to be somewhat sloppy in your injection protocol. 100 mLs of iodine injected at 4 mLs per second gives you at least 25 seconds of high contrast enhancement in the arteries. If your CTA takes only 3 seconds, you have a lot of room for error. If you're still unsure, some sites will do multiple acquisitions, increasing the radiation dose each time. However, administering excess contrast agent or excess radiation is not the best solution. In order to optimize the contrast injection timing, there are two approaches that we use. For CT, we can do a small test injection of an iodine, perhaps 30 to 40 mils, then look to see how long it takes for the aorta to enhance. Complicated equations then follow to calculate the scan parameters, depending on the injection speed and the amount of contrast used. At one time, our technologists had to use Excel spreadsheets for MRI and plug in the numbers manually. More recently, most of us use real-time monitoring of the contrast bolus in the aorta or another vessel. In our MRI department, the timing is still manual. The technologist manually watches the vessel enhance. Then he or she hits the start button. We have even used manual or visual contrast timing for some complicated CT cases where a cardiac shunt may be present but the more common practice with CT is to place a region of interest cursor in the vessel. Begin monitoring with low radiation dose and start the diagnostic scan when a pre-specified density is reached in the vessel. This method works well in at least two-thirds of the cases. There are known pitfalls. Patients who have aneurysms have very large vessels and may have low cardiac output. For some reason, about 5-10% to of our pulmonary embolism studies do not function well with this approach. Perhaps the IV angiocath is too small, or the heart rate too high or too low. Most of the time, we do not know exactly why we have these technically limited studies. In our current research article, the authors suggest that the main reason we get technical failures is because we cannot measure cardiac output in relationship to the iodine injection rate cardiac output is normally six liters per minute in the adult. But in a sick patient, cardiac output may be one liter per minute. In a hyperdynamic patient with a high heart rate, younger person, cardiac output may be 10 or 11 liters per minute. Next, consider the complex mathematical combination of cardiac output convolved with the rate of contrast injection. As of today, None of our injection protocols have been able to take cardiac output into account. Purpose. Use an automated technique for CT angiography that varies the timing of the CTA based on cardiac output and injection protocol. Methods. How are we going to get an estimate of the combination of injection rate and volume plus cardiac output during the CT scan? Here's the answer that the authors came up with we are already performing real-time monitoring of aortic enhancement. Today, on your CT scanner, you simply start the CT scan when the enhancement reaches a fixed number. For example, the conventional protocol in this study monitored left atrial enhancement. The CT scan was triggered when the density of the left atrium reached 120 Huntsfield units. There was a pre-programmed delay of four seconds, then the CTA of the body was acquired. In the experimental group, a fixed delay was not used. Instead, iodine was injected. Low-dose monitoring of the left atrium was done every one to two seconds. The CT scanner had a real-time record of the slope of the enhancement curve, the change in contrast over time. As you might expect, the rate of change of enhancement per unit time is directly related to, number one, cardiac output, and, number two, the rate and volume of your iodine injection. The rate at which the contrast increases over time is called the arterial impulse function. A holy grail of many research and clinical studies is to get an accurate record of the arterial impulse function. Well, that problem is solved for CT. We can get the impulse function on every CTA study. Until recently, however, it's been ignored. Now that we have the arterial impulse function... All of those equations from your body MRA and CTA lectures can be used, but they are used automatically. The equations are pre-programmed in the CT scanner ahead of time. The authors had a patient database that allowed them to determine the average arterial blood circulation time. Compare your patient on the CT table to all of the other patients and automatically customize the delay time for your patient. It's a lot of technology, but from your point of view, That technology is pre-programmed ahead of time by someone else. Your actual process is unchanged. Perform automated bolus monitoring, and the scanner triggers automatically based on a customized delay time. The authors prospectively evaluated 108 patients using the conventional fixed approach. After the left atrium reached 120 Hounsfield units, they waited four seconds and then began the diagnostic CTA of the aorta. Then, the next 108 patients were evaluated using the custom delay time approach. Results. First, which patients were evaluated? Almost any approach will work if we only evaluate healthy 45-year-old men as outpatients. But that was not the case in this study. The average age was 72. 30% had diabetes. These patients had a lot of aortic disease. 10% had follow-up for aortic dissection. 15% had untreated aneurysms, and about 60% had follow-up after aneurysm repair, a wide range of aortopathy. The authors had typically used fixed delay times of 4 seconds, but using the new approach, they found their computer decided the average delay time should be much longer, 9 seconds. But most important, the new approach automatically decided that some patients needed a 6-second delay while others needed an 11-second delay. For the conventional approach, the density of the distal pelvic vessels was 15% average lower than that of the aortic arch. In the customized approach, there was only about a 5% variation in density from the aortic arch to the iliac artery. But averages do not tell the entire story. Radiologists blinded to the injection protocol reviewed the CT scans. Excellent or good image quality for the entire aorta was present in two-thirds of the cases with the fixed delay. One-third of cases had average or worse enhancement. However, excellent or good quality was present in 100% of cases with the customized delay approach. Conclusion. Poor CTA quality has been a fact of life for the radiologist until now. On pulmonary CTA, perhaps 5-10% to 10% of cases have contrast timing that needs to be improved at our hospital. Some are PE studies that become non-diagnostic. For a long time, we have known a theoretical way to fix the problem. The mathematics are well known. And now, there is a definitive method to automatically have the CT scanner think for itself... Customize the scan delay individually for each patient based on each patient's hemodynamic status at the exact moment of the CT. Yes, this is research software and it was not available for commercial use at the time of this publication. But I suggest asking about this approach when you purchase your next CT scanner to find out when something similar will be available. Within three years, my prediction is this will be available in standard on most if not all CT scanners. This is an excellent study with overdue technology that we've been waiting for. Our next article is a short story about lung cancer and avoiding mistakes. The short title is CT Characteristics of Solitary Cystic Lung Cancer. The article is a very large case series based on the experience of three hospitals in Beijing, China. The first author is Yang Tan. The senior author is Jin Lin Wu. Background. Our knowledge is growing about lung cancers associated with lung cysts. In radiographics, there was a review of these cancers in 2018. The potential concern is that tumors associated with cystic lung disease may look like areas of inflammation or scar. The cystic airspace associated with the lung cancer may be the most dominant feature on CT. Such tumors are called solitary cystic lung cancer. The incidence of these lesions is less than 4%. This report is a very large series of 106 patients with cystic lung cancers. Purpose To describe the CT appearances of solitary cystic lung cancer. Methods The authors defined a cystic lung cancer as appearing with a thin walled cyst in the lung with a cyst wall thickness of 4 millimeters or less. Results Of the 106 patients in the series, the average age was 60. About one half of the patients were current smokers. The other half of the patients were former smokers. 50% of the patients had no symptoms. On CT, the cystic lung cancer was in any lobe. The average cyst size was two centimeters and the largest cyst with a cancer was nine centimeters. About 50% of cases had a nodule in the wall of the cyst. 40% had irregular margins. About 90% were adenocarcinoma, 10% squamous cell carcinoma. The CT appearance was correlated with the pathology. Some tumors had ground-glass opacities around the cysts. The ground-glass areas around the lung cyst corresponded to areas of infiltration by tumor. But why do these lung cancers form as part of a cyst? Most lung cancers are simply a mass arising in relationship to the alveolus or bronchial wall. How is a cyst formed? The authors had several patients who were monitored over time with CT when they were not certain if the lesion was cancer or not. In these patients, the authors found that the bronchus leading to the cyst had been invaded by the tumor. But the bronchus was not completely occluded. The authors suggest that the mass in the bronchus worked as a one-way check valve, Air could get past the bronchial mass, but could not get out. Over time, the cyst would enlarge. Eventually, as the mass got even larger, the mass eventually blocked the entire bronchus. No more air going in or out of the cyst. At that point, the cyst became smaller and was eventually replaced with tumor. Conclusion Evaluation of complex cystic disease in the lung is challenging. We do not want to miss these tumors. The cysts are irregular to begin with, but with tumor, the cyst wall or cyst size changes over time. It's very useful to know about solitary cystic lung cancer and view some of these images in this month's issue of radiology. Doctors Patricia Murgo and Carlos Roja at Mayo Clinic Jacksonville write an editorial comment about these lesions. They note that the incidence is 1 to 4%. Importantly, Twenty-two percent of missed lung cancers in a large lung cancer screening trial had this appearance of a bulla with wall thickening. The most common feature is non-uniform thickening of the cyst wall and ground glass opacities may be present around the cyst. The Fleischner Society does not have special recommendations for following these lesions nor does lung RADS. Solitary cystic lung cancer is definitely an entity that we need to think about. This next topic is stroke, and perhaps just as important, recovery from stroke. The short title is Neurodegeneration of the Substantia Nigra after Ipsilateral Infarct. The first author is Dr. Pierre Link. The senior author is Dr. Thomas Turdius. The study is from Central University Hospital, Radiology and Neuroimaging in Bordeaux, France. Background. A stroke produces dead brain tissue, but after the stroke occurs, is the brain static or are there other more long-term damaging effects of the stroke? Think of the central region of the brain as an airplane traffic control system, but I live in Madison, Wisconsin, out at the edge of traffic control system, and our airport is relatively small. If I want to travel from Madison to Los Angeles, I need to make a stop at a central airport hub. In my case, I travel to Atlanta. Atlanta is a huge airport. From there, you can make connections to anywhere in the United States. From Atlanta, I can make my next flight to Los Angeles. Now, let's say that the winter weather in Madison is bad, very inconsistent. This past winter, maybe it was two or three feet of snow or temperatures of minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Flights to Atlanta become irregular. Sometimes they're okay, sometimes late, sometimes canceled. Certainly that becomes my problem, but Atlanta should be able to keep operating despite any weather problem in Madison. Except for me, all of the other passengers are on their way to Los Angeles. But you can also imagine a different picture in Atlanta. Cancelled flights in Madison might start to impact Atlanta. The Atlanta gates are sometimes empty, sometimes full. Staff in Atlanta is waiting around, waiting for flights from Madison that never come. The Atlanta staff starts to move the gates around, Passengers get confused, baggage gets lost. In a very connected world, the peripheral airport problem can cause downstream central damage and confusion. The theory of connectedness in the brain is similar. If there is damage in an outer portion of the brain, the neuronal connections to the inner downstream brain portions could get damaged because the connections are messed up. The communications in the brain go both ways. There are both positive and negative neurotransmitters in these central brain hubs. If there is a stroke in the brain cortex, connections are lost and neurotransmitters in the central brain regions can be overstimulated or not regulated. Can this be detected on MRI? Can a stroke in the periphery eventually cause central brain damage? Purpose. The authors used iron deposition as a marker of brain damage after stroke. They measured change in brain iron in the substantia nigra one year after stroke. Methods. The authors did diffusion MRI to determine which region of the brain was involved by stroke. They also did R2 star mapping to determine brain iron. The R2 star value is directly related to the amount of iron present. Greater amount of iron in the brain is associated with brain injury. 181 patients were evaluated. All had supratentorial infarcts. About 100 patients had infarcts involving the striatum of the brain. As you recall, the striatum is more central, a subcortical region of the brain, part of the basal ganglia. The main portions of the striatum are the caudate nucleus and the putamen. In the coronal view on MRI, the caudate and putamen are separated by the internal capsule. The internal capsule is white matter, but it is crossed by stripes of gray matter. This is the reason for the term striatum for this region. The striatum receives information from the cortex and processes that information. Much of that information is about motor function, especially voluntary motion. This area is strongly affected in Parkinson's disease. Thus we recall that abnormalities of this portion of the basal ganglia can result in movement disorders tremors, and rigidity related to the extent of neurodegeneration. Brain fibers extend from the cortex to the striatum. Fibers from the striatum, in turn, travel to other brain structures, including the substantia nigra and then to the rest of the body. The authors evaluated patients with a stroke involving the striatum, but not involving the substantia nigra. These patients had an MRI at baseline and then one year after the stroke. The question... Did a stroke in the peripheral area of the brain result in any injury in a central area of the brain that at baseline was normal? Results. Immediately after the stroke, the amount of iron in the substantia nigra was the same on both sides of the brain when the stroke side was compared to the normal side. But one year after the stroke, there was much more iron in the substantia nigra on the same side of the stroke. Remember, the substantia nigra was never involved by the stroke. Quite important, those patients had eventual long-term abnormalities. Recovery of motor function was worse for patients who had more iron in the substantia nigra. Conclusion My analogy was for airports. How could problems in a small airport like Madison cause downstream problems in a large airport like Atlanta? Apparently, even the Madison airport could mess up connections in the larger Atlanta airport. For the brain, one year after stroke... The substantia nigra on the same side showed evidence of damage, more accumulation of iron. Iron in the brain is a marker for neuronal damage. The damage of the substantia nigra was associated with worse recovery of motor function for stroke patients. The substantia nigra was damaged simply because it shared connecting fibers with the original area of the stroke in the striatum. These results are not optimistic, indicating the potential for widespread brain damage after stroke due to loss of connections far from the original stroke. Understanding these long-term injuries after stroke is important. Not only must acute stroke be treated, but there may also be unfortunate long-term neurodegenerative effects that need to be evaluated if we are to improve long-term outcome from stroke. The short title of our next research article is Diagnostic Performance of 4-D CT and SPECT CT in Localizing Parathyroid Adenomas. The first author is Dr. Randy Yeh. The senior author is John Beliskian. The study is from Columbia University. Background. The diagnosis of hyperparathyroidism is considered when serum calcium levels are elevated. Parathyroid hormone assays are then obtained and indicate elevated hormone secretion. When definitive management is needed, many types of imaging may be considered, including ultrasound, CT, MRI, and SPECT. The traditional method for localization of abnormal parathyroid glands is SPECT-CT using technetium sestamibi. Sestamibi is taken up by both the thyroid gland and the parathyroid tissue but the radiotracer is retained longer by the parathyroid glands compared to the thyroid tissue. In order to further improve parathyroid visualization, subtraction imaging may be used. For example, I-123 could be used to image the thyroid. The I-123 images would then be subtracted from the Sestamoebe images, leaving only parathyroid signal. This adds additional radiation, time, and complication. So-called 4-D CT was proposed in 2006. The term 4-D imaging is used too much these days, as any real meaning has now been lost. And that's the case with 4-D CT imaging of the parathyroid glands. The initial CT studies were published in the surgery literature, so no one really seemed to care much about accurate CT terminology. I wonder how many radiologists know what 4-D CT of the parathyroid means. The definition is simply three phases. Pre-contrast, arterial phase at 30 seconds after iodine injection, and a second acquisition at 60 seconds. Iodine contrast is injected rapidly, and the hyperplastic parathyroid glands show arterial hyperenhancement. So that's 4D imaging. The fourth dimension is supposed to represent change over time. For the parathyroids, the term 4DCT has stuck and only means the same type of protocol that you would perform for liver or abdominal imaging. Purpose: Compare 4 d CT to Sestamoebe SPECT for parathyroid localization in a large surgical series. Methods. Over four years, there were more than 600 patients evaluated for parathyroid localization at the author's hospital. 174 patients did not have surgery, and those patients were excluded because there was no final answer if imaging was wrong or right. The final patient population consisted of 400 patients with surgical correlation. The authors used the preoperative radiology report to compare the results of 4D CT and Cestamoebe. Imaging protocol. The sestamibi protocol was to image with SPECT CT at 30 minutes and at 2.5 hours after injection. When the SPECT imaging was completed, a 4D CT was performed. Results. For all diagnostic performance measures, 4DCT was the same or better than Sestamibis SPECT. Let's look at these one at a time. Sensitivity, 4DCT sensitivity was about 80%, SPECT about 60%. We see that a major benefit for 4DCT over SPECT is to detect more lesions. Specificity, for both modalities, the specificity was high and about the same, 4DCT 96%, Spec CT 99%. AUC value. The AUC curve expresses the entire range of sensitivities and specificities of a diagnostic test. An AUC of 0.5 is a toss of a coin. The AUC values were better for CT, 0.87 versus 0.78 for SPECT. That's considered to be a large difference in diagnostic performance. What about combining the SPECT and 4DCT? The combination showed no substantial difference compared to using 4DCT alone. Conclusion What's the lesson here? Does this mean we should just perform 4DCT alone? For every metric, the 4DCT was better or at least as good as SPECT, but there are a few considerations. First, radiation dose. 4DCT has a radiation dose 50 times greater than SPECT. If the patient is younger, SPECT might make more sense. Second, on our editorial board, we constantly want to see larger and larger studies. For my own first publication in radiology on pancreas cancer, published in 1995, there were 57 patients. That was also a surgical case series. In that era, it was quite common to see publications with patient sizes of 50 or so, but we always wanted more. Our current study about 4DCT has 400 patients. What do we gain by having this larger number of patients? The answer, we get better point estimates of the sensitivity and specificity. 400 patients showed the sensitivity of 40 CT was 80%. The confidence interval was fairly small that this is the right answer, about plus or minus 3%. In my study of about 50 patients, our confidence interval was about plus or minus 10%. Because CT sensitivity was 80% versus 60% for SPECT, does that mean we can stop doing SPECT? Unfortunately, no. The only thing we know is that when the two tests are done together at the same time, we get that result. In a retrospective case review, radiologists will use whatever information they have available to interpret the images at that time. In this study, both SPECT and CT were performed and interpreted at the same time, just as in your own reading room. In summary, I like several aspects of the study. First, the odd use of the term 4DCT for parathyroid imaging. The term is stuck, especially in the non-radiology literature. Perhaps I could talk with our liver imagers and get them to rename their multi-phase liver as 4D liver CT. Second, in a very large series, the 4D CT was much better than SPECT cestamibi. Third, the article illustrates a very important and potentially misleading conclusion that we need to be careful about. The 4D CT was so much better than SPECT, but that was only when the two tests were performed together in the same practice setting. We still do not know what happens when 4D CT is used alone. Should a junior attending do a prospective study, perhaps separate the readings of CT and SPEC to get the true numbers? I'm not convinced this is necessary. You can easily combine these two tests in the same setting on modern SPEC CT cameras. The results are excellent, the patient benefits. The primary disadvantage of both tests is radiation dose with CT, but having a definite diagnosis may be very helpful to the patient. Our next article is Contrast Enhanced MR Angiography for Visualization of the Prostatic Artery Prior to Prostate Artery Embolization. The study is from Beijing, China. The first author, Dr. Jin Long Zhang, the senior author Yan Wang. This is the first time that two articles from China have been mentioned in the same podcast. The quality of research from China has improved tremendously just over the past five years. If you track other areas of science and technology, the same is also true. As you have heard, China is rapidly closing the gap with the United States in artificial intelligence. Our journal uses a double-blind system for reviewing. The reviewers do not know who wrote the article, and the authors do not know who reviewed the articles. The aim is to remove bias in the review process. This research topic was also a new area to me, MRA of the arteries that supply the prostate gland. I recently visited Tulane and LSU in New Orleans. The chief of radiology commented that ever more of his interventional procedures were for prostate embolization, The treatment is an alternative for benign prostate hyperplasia, or BPH. The interventional procedures have been described as extremely challenging due to complex anatomy and small vessels. The numbers, 50% of men at age 50 and up to 80% of men at age 80 have urinary tract symptoms related to BPH. The main treatment is a long-acting alpha-1 antagonist. Five drugs are currently approved for the treatment of BPH, including Flomax and Rapaflow. Treatment complications are dizziness, hypotension, and sexual dysfunction. Treatments may take six months or more to be effective. For patients with severe obstruction, the most common treatment is TERP, transurethral resection of the prostate. In the United States, prostate embolization is still considered to be experimental with outcomes that are inferior to surgery, the TERP procedure. The main advantage of prostate embolization Less invasive, with fewer complications than TERP. Purpose. Determine if MRA of the pelvis is useful to identify the prostate arteries prior to embolization for benign prostatic hypertrophy. Methods. 100 consecutive men were randomized to either undergo MRA or no MRA prior to prostate embolization. The main questions were, number one, could MRA identify the prostate arteries, and number two, Was it clinically useful to identify the prostate arteries on MRA before the procedure? Results. First, the MRA images of the pelvic arterial anatomy in this article are excellent. The technique was standard and can be easily applied by others. The authors used gadolinium MRA with time-resolved technique. A rapid series of about 10 images were acquired every 10 seconds. The prostate gland is enlarged and hypervascular, a blush from the prostate gland helps to identify its location in addition to the small arteries from the iliac arteries that supply the prostate. In the 50 patients who had an MRA, the embolization procedure took 1 hour and 20 minutes of time. Without an MRA, the average procedure took more than 2 hours. The fluoroscopy time was only 14 minutes in the patient group with MRA versus 28 minutes without the MRA. Overall, the MRA identified 92% of the prostate arteries. Conclusion. With increased age of the population, prostate embolization becomes more attractive compared to surgery due to fewer complications and minimally invasive technique. The results are not as consistent as a TERP procedure but are less traumatic. MRA is easy to perform prior to embolization and was helpful to the experienced interventional radiologist. CT of the pelvis has also been demonstrated to be useful prior to the interventional procedure. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke, editor for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.